I do have to find about growing up, you know what I'm saying? Like, feeling better, living better, better location. What he failed to tell you was, when you're on my time, I can reclaim it. I, he left that out, so I'm reclaiming my time. Please, I can respond. Are you kidding me? Who are you rooting for tonight? I'm rooting for, um, everybody black. Betting on black tonight. I'm sorry for the realness. Hey everybody, it's Whitney from WhitneyDanielle.com and on this episode of Network and Spill, I've got a very special guest here. Um, we're doing a little bit of a blend this week. It's going to be a Stranger Danger episode because I do not know the special guest this week, um, but we are going to get into a bit of her story and she's going to talk to us a little bit about what she's passionate about. So I'm really, really, really pumped. I have not done a ton of cyberstalking or Googling um, about this guest, but her name is Erica Buddington. Um, I don't know where she lives. I don't know anything about her background, but I do know that she went from being a corporate employee of some type to working full-time for herself now. So I think I found her just scrolling somehow. And I saw that she posted something about how it was these sneakers, these like super fancy sneakers. And I was like, what? And then the post was like, I told myself I would always wear sneakers every single day once I was working for myself. And now that's finally happened. And so here we are. And she had a picture of these epic sneakers. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I've actually told myself that in the past. I was like, I want to just wear fancy yoga pants and, you know, it was like these little light jackets and graphic tees. That, that was my thing. So I definitely resonated with that post. Um, and she just seems like an all around cool person. So um, definitely excited for this episode. Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So the way that I typically do these episodes is I like to get to know the person that I'm talking with. And the reason why is because I like to show people listening how I build rapport with people I don't know. So um, it's always a little awkward in the beginning because we don't know each other and you're like, oh, I don't know this person. And I'm like, oh, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm curious and I'm trying to see where I can lead the conversation and vice versa. And it ends up being really, really fun. So I definitely want to start off with where you're from. I thought I saw some pictures from New York, but I, I want to know, are you based on the East Coast? Yes, I am from Brooklyn, New York. Nice. Okay. And did you grow up there your whole life? So kind of half and half. I spent half of my life in Brooklyn. I spent the other half in Long Island, which we affectionately call Strong Island. And now I am back in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy in particular. Nice. Okay. Okay. And what I love about New York and people from New York is funny. We went to the store this weekend in Richmond and the lady that was helping us was from, um, she's from New York city. You could totally tell. And the lady, we, you know, you go to ring up and the lady's like, who talked to you or, or did anybody help you while you were walking around the store? And we were like, yeah, but we can't remember her name. And then I was like, wait a minute. No, she has a New York accent and they all knew exactly who she was. Um, and so it's, it's to me, it, I love the, the personality of New Yorkers and how they're just so, rooted in being from wherever they are in New York. Is that, that's, that's pretty accurate, right? Absolutely. We're very proud. Very proud. All right. So I did see a couple posts from, I want to say earlier this month, maybe last month in April, sorry, April's next month. February was last month um, that you've been posting. So tell me a little bit about what you do. Tell me about what you did full time and then what you're doing now. Um, so for the last, three years, I've been running a multi-consultant curriculum and professional development firm called Langston League, um, but I've only been running it out of a WeWork or my home or cafes at night. 
uh, during the day between the hours of 6.30 a.m. and sometimes 7, 8 p.m. I was a dean of students and curriculum designer for charter schools in Harlem and in Brooklyn. And so what got you into that field? Did you go to school for that? And you just, that was like a dream of yours. How did you get into that field specifically? Uh, no. So I actually went to school for, I mean, I studied English arts and creative writing. And then um, I was in my junior year and I was approached by someone who saw me perform some of my work and thought I would be great for students. And uh, next thing I knew, I was working in the juvenile detention center, teaching young women how to write poetry, memoir, um, and perform them. And so I fell in love with the classroom and I haven't left since. Um, about five years into the field, someone approached me about curriculum design, considering I had such great scores in my class and my students were doing so well. And they wanted to know what I was doing differently, considering all teachers were supposed to be using the same curriculum, but they weren't getting the same scoring. And so um, I got my scholarship proficiency because I incorporated a lot of the things that they love. I paid attention to their multiple intelligences. I made sure I connected with their community and their cultures, and I integrated that into the curriculum. And so my supervisor at the time, you know, she let me, I, she just let me start writing curriculum for everyone. And next thing I knew, um, about three years later, I was writing curriculum for the entire network. And then I had a job as a curriculum designer for another major, major charter school. And, and then I found myself in my last position as a dean of students who was responsible for designing and coaching the elective team members. And um, yeah, the last three years I've been consulting on my own. And as of the last year and a half, I now have uh, 12 independent contractors that are also consultants and love to integrate, you know, multiple, multiple perspectives and narratives and pop culture and student background and interest in curriculum the same way that. Wow. That's definitely a cool journey. And I, I, I want to get into the poetry and, and your performing and stuff later. And I want to talk more about writing, but before we do that, I do want to know when you're working with these clients one-on-one, -on -one, I mean, how did you go about, um, finding these different independent contracts? Like how did you, did you, did you pull some from before? Um, or what was the big, what, what are some of the big differences for you now than when you were working, I guess, with, for somebody else? Um, so, I mean, if I'm hearing the question, right, you're asking me, uh, how did I find these contractors that I work with? Yeah, I actually kind of asked, like, that was like a three-part question, um, because okay. it's kind of forming in my head as I'm thinking about what you're doing. So, because what you're doing is really unique. I don't think I've ever met anybody who does, I mean, I know people in the education space, um, and I know people who work in, in like the literary space, but I don't think I know anybody doing what you're doing. So when you go from working for a company to working independently and, and getting your own sort of repertoire of, of clients um, or contracts, did you... Um, did you have those people sort of in your network already or did you have to do like work to go out and find each and every one of them? So I had to do a little bit of both, right? Um, half of it was, half of my consultants come from um, different spaces that I've been in or are referrals from ed educators that I trust and that I've known for years. And then the other half um, kind of found us, right? And so they would see us in a professional development. They would witness us 
teach a class, they would come into contact with our curriculum and they just wanted to know, how can I be down? Like, I'm, I'm really trying to be a part of this movement that you guys are creating. And you're right, um, what we do is extremely unique. Um, and there are not a lot of educational firms that specialize in creating culturally responsive and sustaining curriculum and professional development. So um, it's been a very interesting journey. And as long as you're doing really awesome work, awesome people will find you. And that's exactly what's happened. So we've had uh, facilitators and consultants come in and during their interview, like bring really intriguing curriculum with them, comparing these really awesome, like pop culture, graphic novel, comic book, just things that kids are like super interested in, um, getting, getting it, uh, aligning it with mathematics and aligning it with ELA and history. Um, and they, they already have a sense of what we do. So, uh, we must be doing something right. And, you know, usually those are the folks that we take on, people that are willing to defy the status quo when it comes to traditional instructional material, which we don't believe in. Hmm. Okay. So can you tell us about a time where you sort of helped somebody who was interested in this but didn't know where to start, like, and you were able to take them from having that, that structured, boring, sort of typical curriculum or way of going about something, and you were able to help them see it differently and then create something amazing from it? Oh, well, I mean, that happens every day. <laughs> I'm always in trouble for consulting for free all the time. Um, but I, there, I, there's a teacher that um, reached out to me after professional development and she really wanted to um, figure out a way to get her students to grasp onto this unit she was trying to do. A, um, the unit was about French composers and it required me to do some research on my part because, you know, um, I played the tenor saxophone as a kid, but I don't really know a lot about French composers. And so um, I asked her about her, her students what sort of music they were interested in. And um, she wasn't able to tell me. I said, well, that's where we need to start first. She went and surveyed her scholars and brought back to me a list of their favorite musicians. And I did some research. I was able to find out that one of their favorite rappers, A Bookie with the Hoodie, he has a song called Drowning. And the song uses a sample. Um, well, actually, the producer, he went to Juilliard. And there's like this great video on Rap Genius about it where this Juilliard um, bread producer is like, He's rocking kicks, you know, he's an African-American man, he's got treads, he's making this beat, and he talks about using a French composer sample to create this beat, right? And so underneath all these layers, I find one of the composers that she's teaching in that unit. And so I bring it to her, and instantly um, it went off like a light bulb, what she needed to do, like create those cultural connections, create those bridges for her students. And... Um, <laughs> She probably emails me every month about something new that she's come up with, and she has definitely seen a turnaround when it comes to student retention because her elective is optional, and so she was getting about 15 students, um, but her class could fit 24, and now there are kids on the waiting list to get into her class because she made those changes. And so um, I would say that's like a quick snippet of what we do, getting educators to pull back the layers, and not just educators, also we work with corporate environments as well, and getting them to analyze certain scenarios and understand how to step outside of diversity activity mode and truly incorporate culture all year round um, in their workspaces. And so, yeah, that's one time. 
Yeah, no, that's a really cool story. And it definitely seems like you do have that sort of happening in different ways each and every time you work with a new client, because that's really the whole point of what you do, right? Is to help them see past what they've been doing into something completely, you know, different and completely more in alignment with where I guess they're maybe trying to go. Um, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the cool part. But um, so I am curious about, you know, you call your, your company is called Langston, the Langston League. Is that right? Langston League. Yeah. Langston League. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what inspired that name? Like, what is the connection you have um, with that name and a little bit of background? Because I did see you, you posted a photo not too long ago, um, which I really liked. The I think it was a bunch of photos, whatever that's called. And it was mm-hmm. um, you standing in like a, like a brownstone on some steps and mm-hmm. you took that same picture. It was Langston Hughes, right? Yeah. So um, my mother has been reading Langston Hughes to me since I was in the womb. Uh, so he's been a really big part of my life. I knew, um, the poem Crystal, Mother to Son, you know, Crystal, the, the one that has the repetition of Crystal Stair in it. Um, when I was a kid, I, I said it religiously around the house all the time as a toddler because my mom would always reiterate his poems to me. Negro Speaks in Rivers. Um, and so it, it's honestly, it started really from birth. But um, as I got older, there were different ways that I would cross paths with Langston Hughes again. And one of the most significant ways was when I first started teaching in Harlem, the school that I taught in was right around the corner from his house. Um, His house is on 127th and 5th in that area. And I remember, you know, I was a little young and naive, and I said, if I go and sit on these steps every day, and work on my lesson plans or work on my writing, perhaps I could soak up some of the energy that he left here. And at the time, the house, no one was living in it, boarded up. Uh, you know, occasionally the owner, I think her son would come and like check for some mail. And there was one day where I, I like fell asleep, which is crazy. This was like middle of the day in Harlem. It was really nice outside. And I dreamt about a kid that like walked up to me. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, oh, are you coming? I'm like, go where? He's like, to Langston League. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, sure. And I like woke up and it hit me. Um, The name meant something. I was like, wow, what am I doing with this? I have no idea why. And at that time, I was in a space of uh, just being really frustrated with the scripted curriculum that was given um, to us and how the central text that we were giving the kids had no reflection of the kids we were serving. The protagonists were not protagonists of color. They were not diverse in ability or diverse in sexuality or diverse in anything, really. Um, there was just this white dominant narrative that I, I mean, the books were literally books I had been reading since I was in high school and I was in high school. And I was like, we got to do something about this, you know? And then that we turned to I and that I reverted back to we once, you know, links to league um, went from being a one person consultant to a multi-consultant firm. And so that's where the name comes from. Nice. And I think that's a really, it's a really cool story. Number one, number two, I think that's a really good segue into talking about poetry. Um, I am somebody who's always admired poets and rappers too. Cause I mean, I feel like it's very similar in being able to come up with, words that rhyme or that match or that tell a story in just such an interesting way. I think poetry is so 
underrated and just it's slept on as one of the, in my opinion, I think it's one of the coolest, coolest ways to read and to learn about somebody. Um, I, I'm, I'm in love with poetry and I always have been, um, but I've never been a poet. Like I've, I had to do stuff for school, but I've never really put in the work, especially when you start. My sister went to VCU in Richmond, Virginia, and I think I went to some poetry slam there one day and it was insane, insane. I sat there and I swear to you, I was glued to my seat and I was so in awe of the people that were performing and how not only were they so different and they talked about different things, but just the way in which they spoke, the enunciation and the, and the flow of things. And it, I just think it's so cool. So I definitely want to talk about how you got into poetry and what you love about it. I saw on your, um, I think it's on your, uh, on your bio. Um, and guys, if you're listening to this and you want to actually like look at her page, if you go into Instagram, um, I think, what is your exact, is it just Erica Buddington? Yeah. Uh, first name, last name. Yeah. If you go to at Erica Buddington on Instagram, she's got a really cool page. Definitely follow her. But in the bio, in your bio, it says something about deaf poetry. So I want to know how all of that came about. Wow. Um, so I was a teenage slam poet. Um, I worked with an organization called Urban Word, and they have three slams in New York City, preliminary, semifinals, and finals that lead up to this huge national slam. Somewhere in the United States, the city changes every year, and a different um, youth group hosts it. And so um, that year, I printed out all of the information. I remember Googling and finding the information and thinking, there's no way I would ever win anything like this. Um, and I left the information next to my computer. And my father found it the day of the preliminaries, two hours before. And he said, is this something you want to do? And I said, uh, it is. And it isn't. And I think I'm just going to stay home. And he's like, yeah, you're going to get dressed and we're going. So he puts me in the car, I drove to the Bronx. I won uh, I made it to semifinals. The next thing I knew, I made it to finals and I won. Got on the six-person team that went to nationals. And then we won. And we were first in the United States. And so one of the judges was um, a producer at HBO Deaf Poetry. And she loved the poem that, you know, me and one of um, the other students performed. And we, it was our freshman year of college because, you know, we... We won the slam, and then we went literally went uh, to pre-college for the summer, and then we were gone. So, like, our 15 minutes of fame was short-lived because we had to get ready for school. And September, and I get a phone call, and it's my coach telling me that, you know, HBO Deaf Poetry reached out, and they want us to come back to New York to record and to tape for the show. And I'm like, what? And so, uh, we're 17 years old. It was really amazing. Um, and it really opened up a lot of doors. I remember coming back to school, um, and I had to be quiet about it. I couldn't really tell anybody, you know, that I had done the taping. And then it um, aired on HBO a few months later. And the next thing I knew, I opened my MySpace that next morning, and I had hundreds of requests. And that's how the journey really began. I started to get invites to come to um, you know, universities and shows all over the country. And that's really how I paid for, you know, like my pocket money and some of my tuition in college was flying and performing with a suitcase full of Norton anthologies and poems. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's, that's how poetry uh, became a part of my life. And now 
I mean, I use it every single day. I use it in curriculum. Um, I use it during our professional development to, you know, create some sort of conceptual understanding sometimes. Um, I use it in the novels that I write. So it's really a, a major part of my life. That's beautiful. And I'm really impressed. I mean, that's such a cool story um, and a cool transition uh, from being, a, and I'm glad your dad supported you. I mean, how cool is it when people you love are like, no, this is, this is actually what's, what's about to happen. And they pull you, because what if you hadn't gone? I mean, can you imagine if he had let you stay home or if you had stayed home and just been like, yeah, maybe next time. I mean, that was a huge, a huge moment. So um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Shout out to your dad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So um, I, I, you're doing these transitions for me at this point. Like I don't even have to try. So you, you mentioned writing. Um, mm-hmm. And so I definitely want to get into that. So you, you do all this stuff. And obviously you love books. And it's so cool because I've been getting, I don't know why, honestly. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I've been on Instagram searching and just really researching people or um, I got a couple of books and I just kept clicking. You know how you rabbit hole into things? But for whatever reason, my entire Instagram feed has been filled with black books books that are written mm-hmm. by African-American women specifically um, and just books sharing different stories. And I mean, it's just incredible. And so I've been really rabbit holing down this huge, huge spiral um, and finding some really cool writers and authors. And I've been buying books on Amazon, like nobody's business. And it's so much fun to read, obviously the classics, um, but it's also cool to bring in some of the newer books from people who are, you know, in the same sort of age bracket, um, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older, but I love being surrounded by great books. And it sounds like you do too. So let's talk about some of your books. What made you start writing um, in the first place, that first book that you were like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Um, keeping in mind, I don't know anything about what books you've read, what the topics are, what the genres are, but I want to know what got you to that. And then maybe what you see for yourself when it comes to writing in the future? Wow. Well, um, my parents kept, you know, shelves. I was privileged. They kept shelves of books everywhere. I couldn't go anywhere without seeing books in my house. And so um, I spent a lot of time just burying myself in different things. Everything from, you know, HTML coding books, like those dummy handbooks, and then to uh, Pearl Cleese's work and Toni Morris's work, to poetry by um, Bruce Nugent and plays by Zora Neale Hurston, right? So I grew up with a lot of the classics. Um, I snuck some of the urban fiction when I got a little older, like Coldest Winter Ever and um, Donald Goins and Anne Petrie, right? Um, And, you know, some Terry McMillan. But then I realized... um, when I was in my early teens, early 20s, late teens rather, I'm sorry, early 20s, that there was like this gaping hole for like fiction that reflected me, right, as a millennial. Um, and I was, I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, I found glimpses, glimpses of it. I remember reading a young adult novel called Jason and Kyra by David Davidson about two African-American teens in love the suburbs, which is very unconventional because a lot of the books that were being written at the time were about um, teens from a very particular space in the inner city. Um, And, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity. And to be quite honest, a lot of those books were not written by us. (laughs) Um, And the ones that were written by us were not getting the shine that they should have been getting. And so uh, I just remember I wanted to fill this gap. Like, I was like, there's this huge gap. No one's writing about 
you know, what I'm experiencing, I want to sell it. And so I remember I wrote some short stories. I said, pass them around high school. My friends would like read them and ask me, where's part two? Where's part three? I did B2K fan fiction on the forums when I was a teenager. Um, and then when I went to college, that's my first creative writing class. I thought it was one of my first novel. Um, and then I remember seeing a professor in her, during her office hours. And she said to me that what I was writing didn't feel like literature. It felt like trash. It felt like the books that would make it to the bargain section. Um, they were love stories um, in Brooklyn, and they were about teenagers or people that were coming into their adulthood. And she just felt like I could do better. I could do better. And it really, it, it, it really broke my heart. So I remember um, when I left college, I started a blog and I started writing again, um, trying to let go of the fear a little bit at a time. And next thing I knew, um, somebody picked it up. It was like this magazine called Edge Magazine. And we started like, hey, we'd love for you to write for our magazine. And I was on that of more. And I was on Ebony. And I was on Clutch. And I think, like, it was, it was spiraling out of control where everybody wanted me to write. And I was really writing those same love stories, but they weren't fiction. They were my stories. <laughs> um, they were memoir. And, you know, women really were uh, feeling like they could see themselves within my tribulations and my triumphs. And I realized that I needed to write something whole. And that's how my first book came to be. So it was literally a collection of these fiction moments that I had. And I like put them into one book called An Intention. Um, and then all my dating experiences is of Micah and Ben. And then I wrote a Borrows Apart, which is a love story that goes between the Harlem Renaissance and Harlem right now. And then the last book I wrote was F-Boy Literature, which is like a compilation of poems and um, essays. And currently I'm working on a novel and I just got my first literary agent this year. So this will be mainstream publishing as opposed to self-publishing. So that's how I got into the field. And um, it's been a long ride, but I'm excited to be where I am. It's a good place. It seems that way. Yeah, that's awesome. So I do want to go back a little bit to talk about that teacher who said what they said. So obviously that teacher was older than you and you said you, mm-hmm. you shifted a little bit and then you found that people were resonating. And so I did want to highlight that because I think it's important. Number one, I think it's important because a lot of us are doing work and we're not feeling like we're being heard or seen or acknowledged by the right people. And it seems like what you did was even though you got that criticism or that critique or that whatever, that insight from that person, you still kept going. You, you didn't say, okay, well, you know, if my books are just going to go into the trash bin or the bargain bin, then screw it. I'm not going to do it anymore. Maybe this isn't what I'm meant to be doing. You said, okay, that hurt, but I'm going to keep writing. And I'm, I may switch it a little bit, but I'm going to keep writing. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper and I'm going to take that information and help it push me. Is that pretty much what you did? Um. I mean, I, I, I won't lie. I did stop for about a year and got into my spoken word and just memorizing my poems and performing. And then the next year, I said to myself, forget that. I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to push past this commentary and I'm going to try. And, and I'm glad I did because the other day, you know, uh, I'm reading the back of a book jacket. And if I didn't mention this before, you know, I'm a po- I was a poet, but I also an MC. Um, and I, I love to write about love. And that was something that she highlighted, that I was so obsessed with infatuation and I needed to step outside of 
the confines of a romance or a love story. And I'm looking at the back of uh, Angie Thomas's book jacket and, um, you know, her, I'm used to, I remember seeing bios that used to tell you about what MFA this person got, what triumph, what huge prize award. And Angie Thomas's bio says something like what her major was and that she used to be a teenage rapper. And she's a New York Times bestseller. And I remember looking at that book jacket and going, mm, and I let somebody convince me that this wasn't good enough, right? Um, never again, clearly. But if anyone is listening to this podcast and feels as if they're in that place, I would ask them to take heed to that trajectory and that story and, you know, read Angie Thomas's bio. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's I think it's good to do that. And even though you did stop, you you started again. So essentially, you didn't stop, stop. Like you didn't oh, stop, yeah. or as it was a full stop. And I think a lot of people do that. We get we just full stop. So you know, I, I think it's important to, to to take that. And it's always we're going to get feedback from people. We're going to get criticism. We're going to get random, unsolicited, you know, opinions on what we're doing. And and it really does come down to what we want and how we want to keep it moving. So um, I'm glad you shared that. And I, I do appreciate your honesty, but you know, at the end of the day, you're still killing it. And now you've got a literary agent, which sounds like it's going to be really, really fun. So mm-hmm. are you, what are you looking forward to most in this next project? Um, say, can I hear that question one more time? I'm sorry. No, I know. It's okay. What are you looking forward to most with this new project? I know you've got the agent, you've got, you know, some new stuff coming. What, what excites you most? Um, well, what excites me most about this next project is this is the book that I actually started um, in that creative writing class and stopped writing. And I recently joined a writing group, well, about a year ago, not recently, but, um, and I shared this with the writing group and they were in shock. They're like, how come you haven't shown us this this whole time? You know, because I had been in it for about a few months before I was brave enough to pull this piece of work that I hasn't looked at in years um, and let them see it, let the world see it. And they were like, this is so you. It has poetry in it. There's like clear lyricism in your prose. Um, it's so Brooklyn. It's such, there's such a like amazing love triangle happening here. This is so you. And we're so excited that you shared this with us. And I was just in shock because it's, literally the opposite commentary, the inverse of what, you know, that professor had to say to me. Um, and so that's what I'm most excited about is publishing work that is truly reflective of who I am. Perfect. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I'm definitely pumped. Um, and you've got to keep us in the loop um, when you do, you know, get closer and you're, you're doing your book tour and you're doing all that. If you come to the D.C. area, um, I, will. I would absolutely love to have you back on to talk about the book or just to meet up for cocktails or coffee or something. Um, definitely. <laughs> okay. So we talked about what you do. We talked about your poetry. We talked about your writing and your upcoming books. Um, I want to shift a little bit more and kind of lighten it a little bit and just talk more about you personally. So tell me, I know we're still in Q1 technically, Q1's almost over, but what are some of the big goals you have just in general? It could be going to Tahiti or getting a pit bull. Um, What in general do you have for yourself as far as goals for 2019? What are you looking forward to the most? So um, I would say... I'm really looking forward to a fellowship that I'm in the final stages of to build my own school. 
So that is what I feel like I'm looking forward to the most. Um, Lincoln League has been a multi-consultant curriculum firm for the last three years, but we really are excited about implementing that curriculum in a safe, nurturing, creative, and liberal environment for scholars of color. And so that is what I'm most excited about this year. Wow. That would be amazing. Um, Wow. Okay. That's a really, really, really big, really big goal. Um, and not, a, not at all what I was expecting. I thought you were going to keep and say, actually, you know what? I do want to put Paul Whitney, but no, you're going to have your own school. That's incredible. Um, I'm afraid that I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'm afraid of dogs. I had a really bad experience when I was a kid. So, no. <laughs> so one day, one day I'll get over it. All right. Well, I hope so. But that, that, that goal is, is amazing. And I'm, I'm super excited for you. So definitely keep up with your social media for sure, because your social media, I think, um, I, I really, it's funny when you look at people's Instagram profiles, we get, it's, it's kind of like MySpace, I guess, or like Tumblr or, you know, having a blog or something where you really can show parts of your personality. And when I look at your Instagram profile, the reason why I reached out is because I, I just like the layout, the colors. It just, they were good quality, real pictures. Um, yeah. you, know, you can tell a bit about your, and I saw, oh, that's what I want to talk about. So on your stories, you posted something the other day or last week or something, and you were talking about hustling and grinding and really going in on hitting goals and stuff like that. I don't know if you remember this post, but it was last week, but it was really motivating. So I want to talk a little bit about what motivates you. Obviously, you've got a lot that you're doing, but what motivates you and this hustle mode? I mean, tell me a bit about how you navigate through that because it seems like you're really busy Um, because that's part of what you said on the the Instagram. You were like, oh yeah, you know, sometimes you're going to have to say no to certain things. And that's when I was like, oh, hey, she said yes to me. But you said sometimes you have to say no to certain podcasts or certain interviews because you need to focus and you need to stop doing all of the, the BS that you've been doing and focus. Um, so yeah, I definitely want to talk about hustle and how you motivate yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, the hustle culture, to be quite honest, that grind culture, it terrifies me because it exudes this like no sleep, uh, you know, run jet set all over the world, this curation of like beautiful, exciting moments, but really entrepreneurship and like really chasing your goals doesn't look like that. And I try to be as transparent as possible when it comes to that journey, because I want other women or just anyone trying to build an entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial endeavor to take heed, right? And so I get concerned when, you know, I have friends who are reaching out to me and they're like, hey, you should be on this panel, you should be on this podcast, you should be on this thing, you should be on that thing. And then when I tell them that I'm working, they look disappointed, right? Because they have perceived this you know, hustle culture to be exciting and nothing but excitement. When in reality, it's doing the work, right? And all those things will come to you eventually. And eventually you will have people to delegate to so you can do those amazing things. But at the end of the day, it's really doing the work. And so what it looks like for me is um, making sure that I take care of myself because I am (laughs) nothing to anyone if I am not sleeping, if I am not eating, um, if I am not making sure I make time to see my therapist, um, to see my doctor, my neurologist, right? Um, and then also, <laughs> it looks like 
taking in information and fighting imposter syndrome every step of the way. So my walls in my apartment are, uh, in my bedroom, there's a chalkboard wall. In my uh, kitchen, there's a chalkboard wall. In um, my, near my mirrors, there are expo markers. My office is glass at work, and I have a ton of expo markers because I'm constantly ideating. So I'm listening to podcasts and cleaning at the same time. I'm reading HBR when I'm on the train or on a plane and using different uh, examples about creative confidence or, you know, entrepreneurial thinking um, and trying to figure out how can I apply this to what I do, right? I am uh, listening to my friends tell stories about their own endeavors and failures and triumphs on their Instagram stories and their looking at their tweets, I'm looking at curated hashtags, I'm looking at so much and taking it all in, and I'm always taking notes and building out graphs and building out charts and figuring out how can I turn this into something um, that a scholar will appreciate, or how can I turn this into something that I can, that could be a blog post or um, something I can talk to the public about, or how can I just take this for myself and put it in my journal and revisit it every single time I need some inspiration or something to push me, right? And so that's what hustle looks like for me is fitting the work in between the cracks of like collecting information because I think that I like taking time to take care of yourself and to think is the most neglected aspect of entrepreneurial um, endeavors or like business that, you know, we don't talk about that. We always talk about the like panels in the podcast and the being on TV and this and that's great. But the work part of collecting the information and synthesizing it is important for people to see too. Um, and so that's what it looks like for me every day. And I think it's super important. So, um, and I agree. I'm glad that you said that you actually do the work because I think one of the things that irritates me about that hustle, hustle grind culture is that they don't show anybody actually doing any damn work. It's all, oh, look at me. Mm-hmm. Look at me on the gram. Look at me on the beach. Look at me getting, you know what I mean? And it's all photo shoots. I'm like, bro, where's, where's your work? Like, what is the last thing that you've done? What are you struggling with? Where is that imposter syndrome coming up for you besides scrolling on your IG feed, looking at America's Next Top Model. Like, I'm very curious because that's what inspires me is seeing people doing the work. And I say, I will say now that I am more in the entrepreneur space than I was before, I appreciate that. I appreciate when people share the journey, when they keep it real, when they, you know, will get into the trenches trenches with you and sort of explain how to get out of certain funks that you get in um, as an entrepreneur. So yeah, I 100% agree um, and again, we talk a lot about self-care on this podcast and obviously there's a lot of podcasts out there, but there aren't that many personal development ones where they give tips and tricks. It's just one of the spaces I'm trying to fill is making sure that I'm, I'm adding a sort of unbiased, sometimes sarcastic, sassy, but I try to keep a 100 view of, of how to take care of yourself while you're also taking care of business. So um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. So the last question I will ask you besides all of the logistics of where people can find you, which by the way, we've already mentioned Erica Budding on IG and it's Erica with a C, by the way, I didn't clarify Mm -hmm. that. Erica with a C, two D's, right? T-O-N. So it's very phonetic. You can figure it out, but definitely follow her on IG. But I do want to ask you um, one of my favorite questions that I typically ask um, my special guests that come on is tell me about a time 
when networking changed your life or changed the game for you? Hmm. Oh, it's hard for me to pick one (laughs) because this happened so many times. Um, Wow. So um, I would say my social media has some of the most, like, most incredible people you could ever think of. Um, And I feel like there's this Harry Potter character, I'm such a nerd, that collects, like, students that do really amazing things, prominent figures in the Hogwarts world. And I feel like that's what my social media does. And so I'm Facebook friends, Twitter, I follow or I am followed by and on Instagram um, by people that are extremely prominent in their fields, whether it's film, TV, music, um, writing, uh, business, education, etc. And nine times out of 10, I have no idea how we found each other. And so there has been so many times where I've tweeted something from an excerpt from a book I'm reading by a really amazing author or I'll write a Facebook status and that person will be under my status like, oh my God, I'm glad you love that. By the way, really love something that I said or did last week. Uh, talk to you soon. And I'll like click the person's name and go, oh my God, you're following me. Or like, <laughs> like they're... You know, they're writing underneath, like, they're my Facebook friend there, they're writing underneath, that's crazy. Um, and so I realized that if you're putting out the right things, um, you're making sure that you're curating important information for people, you never know who you're going to end up with on your timeline, and those connections can literally change your life. So I would say my favorite example was um, I was tweeting excerpts from M.K. Asante's book. He's an author. Uh, filmmaker, professor, et cetera. So he has this book called It's Bigger Than Hip Hop. It's one of my favorite books. And I'm just tweeting excerpts from it. And he retweets one and says, you know, like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm agreeing. He's like, um, thanks for tweeting the book. I see her in Brooklyn. I'm going to get to Schaumburg next weekend. Let's meet. Let's have a chat. And I'm looking at my, my Twitter like, there's no way he wants to have a chat. And it had to be like 21 at the time. And the next thing I knew, I went to the Schomburg and I went to get my book signed. And then I said my name. Like, oh, you're going to stay around, right? Because we're, we're going to hang. And my friend and I had a chance to sit down with this award-winning author and ask him a million questions about his work and whatnot. And then I was able to form um, a sort of mentorship at that age and be connected to other people because of that, just from tweeting excerpts from a book, right? So I think, you know, sometimes we, we get on our social media and we're, we want to vent and rant and whatever about our day, which is fine. I mean, if that's, that's your thing. I'm not going to judge you. But um, when you're curating information, when you're putting things into the world that are useful and you're tagging the right people or hashtagging the right terms, you'll never, never know who you're going to find or who you're going to make connections with. So that was a really impactful experience. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. And that is so exciting for him to be like, oh yeah, just show up. Yeah, let's hang out. That's <laughs> that <was> crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I love stories. Like that's why I asked that question. Cause you know, the show is about networking and one of the, the biggest parts of networking is, is doing that 
that legwork reaching out. Sometimes it's a tweet, sometimes it's a, a retweet, sometimes it's a, a Facebook post or a phone call or an email or, any, I mean, anything. When you reach out, when you take the time to reach out to somebody and to sort of say anything, you know, how that person helped you through something, how that book changed your life, how that, you know, bit of advice changed your, your marriage or whatever, like you never know. Um, and people need mm-hmm. to hear people need to hear stuff like that, especially in this world where we're constantly fighting with ourselves, right? The imposter syndrome. Everybody has it. It's not just for people who haven't made it yet or who haven't done the thing yet. Everybody has imposter syndrome. Everybody struggles with feeling like they're not good enough or that their work isn't good enough or that they're not doing enough. They're not grinding hard enough. They're not hustling fast enough. Like we're all thinking those same sort of thoughts. So reaching out is powerful. Yeah. Um, it's powerful to do that. So anybody out there who's listening, who wants to reach out to somebody, um, just do it, just do it. Send the email, um, you know, tweet the, the, whatever it is, tweet the tweet, um, and do that work because you never know what can happen. Yeah. That's amazing. So, all right. So where are you besides Instagram? Are you on any other social media platforms? Yes. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. You can find me at Erica Buddington, E-R-I-C-A-B-U-D-D-I-N-G-T-O-N, or at LinkedIn League, L-E-N-G-S-T-O-N-L-E-A-G-U-E. Perfect. And I will put all of those in the show notes. Um, is there anything that you wanted to sort of promote or that you're working on or that you want people to check out? Anything? Um, I know you have the book coming out later, but is there anything that you want people to, if they're interested in learning more or maybe getting into some of your work or watching some of your videos or something where... Where is that located? I mean, if you are looking for corporate, uh, organizational, or educational, culturally responsive professional development or curriculum, you can find us at linksandleague.com and you can literally sign up for a service guide and it will send you our service guide and you will be able to contact me right away. So, Perfect. And I will also link that in the show notes. So awesome. Is there anything else? Do you, do you want to leave anybody with a, with a, maybe a, let's, let's do that. Why don't you leave us with a, a word or something motivational to sort of end. We do these episodes. We typically drop them on Thursday. So maybe we'll look at it as like a weekend, um, something, something that they can take with them into the weekend. Do you have anything, any words Mm -hmm. of wisdom? So even if you do something that is impromptu, you should add it to your to-do list, even if it's just to check it off. Because sometimes we fail to realize all that we do. Perfect. I love that. And I know most of us have some pretty nice to-do lists as we go into the weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. Or we're trying to finish the ones that we had from Monday, right? And it's Thursday <laughs> or Friday, and we've only got a few more things left. So yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show. You share this with your friends, especially your friends who love books, who love reading, who love poetry, who love education, who love New York City, um, who love cool people. Definitely send this to them. You can share it pretty much anywhere. You can share it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, Tumblr, whatever rocks your boat. Make sure you add both of us on social media. I am at Whitney Danielle Coaching and also at Network and Spill on the gram. Uh, I'm on Pinterest and Facebook too. You guys already know that. The the details will be in the show notes. And make sure you tune in every single Thursday. Thank you so much, Erica, for tuning in. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, guys. Cheers. Bye.